and welcome to What Goes Around podcast with me, Eamon Murta, and this woman, who some of you may know by one name and some of you may know by another. I'll just say her. <laughs> it's me. We're going to talk about that in a little bit, aren't we? We certainly are, because it gets a bit confusing when you're my age and you have to learn new skills and names and tricks. Anyway, that's not all we've got on this wonderful podcast. We are also going to talk about the very expensive world of music, which is slowly but surely pricing me out of house and home. Sad times, sad times indeed. And we have an amazing guest today. Who have we got on the pod today, Eamon? We have got uh, one of the people who is responsible for at least two of my favourite albums of all time, Mr Simon Ramond from the Cocteau Twins, would you believe? The blooming Cocteau Twins! Can't believe it. So many people, past guests, have picked the Cocteau Twins for their photographic memories. A real live Cocteau Twin. We've got one captive. We're going to ask him lots of questions. Yeah, he's, he's actually rattling his door at the moment. We're going to have to go and feed him in a minute. <laughs> well, listen, I'm so excited for um, all of the news we've got about name changes and expensive things and the brilliant, brilliant Simon Ramond. Shall we get our pod on? Yes, please. Let's do it. Okay, lady. Let's pod. Let's go. She who may not be named, what is going around? I was wondering how you're going to handle that. <laughs> I was wondering how I was going to handle it too. It's taken, me, it's taken me three years to get used to calling you Anne. And what have you done, Deb? <laughs> <laughs> I know, I'm sorry. Do you remember we sat in the studio and recorded our first few episodes mm. all those years ago? Mm. And uh, you kept calling me Deb and I had to keep saying, stop calling stop me it, Deb, stop, stop. <laughs> It's not my name. Well, now it is my name, so, yeah, so get I'm, used to it. I, all of that brainwashing that I've done to myself over the last couple of years, desperately trying to please you, <laughs> all for nothing. We, we're back to square one. But now you have an, a, a whole other avenue to try and please me, so... That's true. That's good. And that is That's basically good... what I gear my life around. <laughs> good. Glad we're on the same page. No, yeah. wh- why? Why are you no longer going to be named after a despotic monster? <laughs> well, when I first started DJing many, many, many years ago, it was very in vogue for um, DJs to have ridiculous pseudonyms. You know, mm. Joy Orbison, Chad Faker, all of yeah. these kind I, of... I once knew a DJ called DJ Cowgrinder. Oh. <laughs> and another one called DJ Dog Style. Is that a funny portmanteau? I'm talking about the, the cheeky <laughs> portmanteaus. Well, yeah, maybe not so cheeky. But <laughs> I, I, I just thought uh, he was a techno DJ and I just okay. thought of all the names to choose, Cow Grinder. Yeah, that That's is quite intense. an odd one. Yeah. yeah. But yeah. it was kind of like, I don't know, the world has changed so much in the past 10, 15 years. Like it used to be a place where you could be a little bit sort of rude and edgy and everyone thought it was great. And now everyone Mm. wants to be nice to each other. And I don't know, I I feel like the name Anne Frankenstein suits me. So it feels weird (laughs) to be going back to my real name, but it's just a ridiculous name. And also, I don't know, I was watching a a documentary about the great Terry Wogan, may he rest in peace. Mm, The Um, God of radio. Indeed. And uh, he just is such an inspiration in terms of, fostering that sense of intimacy between yourself and whoever's listening and I was watching his um his kind of goodbye speech when he left the breakfast show on radio oh, too I remember it well oh and he said thank you for being my friend and I just thought 
yeah, like that's what it's all about. And if I come on the radio every day and I'm using a ridiculous pseudonym, mm. it's not my real name. I, I was just, I was feeling more and more alienated from it. As you want to keep it real. On. Yeah, like I want to try and keep yeah. it real. And, I uh, like yeah. this. I like this especially because I remember when you were going up for the Jazz FM job mm. and uh, they were a little, mm, bit of an edgy name, bit of an edgy name. And so you were you were talking to me then about whether you were going to get rid of it. And that's quite a long time ago now. And Frank is saying, yeah, it just doesn't sound right. And I said, well, maybe you could shorten it. And he said, <laughs> what to Anne Frank? <laughs> <laughs> that's the trouble, like, you see. The most unfortunate name you could shorten yeah, it to. That is the wonderful. trouble. And also... I was, you know, I could have maybe kept the first name Anne because so many people call me Anne, mm. but that's my sister's real name and she would have been oh, absolutely God. furious. Hadn't thought of that. Yeah, she goes, by, that. she goes by her middle name, but her first name's Anne and she would not have been very happy with me. So, What is it with you guys and your names? Can't you just can, settle down on one thing? Just not very comfortable with who, with who we are. That's the, the uh, Irish Jewish curse. That's the Irish way, isn't it? Yeah, yeah exactly. Sure. But, um, but yeah, it's, I, I, I did the announcement on Twitter. Uh, well, it would have been in the past, a while in the past by the time this episode comes out. Uh, but as soon as I put the announcement out, I just got so many. I didn't realize where people cared that much, let alone mm. to be so nice about it. Everyone's been lovely and I'm really glad I did it. And it's a boring name, but whatever. Hopefully I can, I can. You're you never know. boring, Miss Deb Grant. Well, never. I uh, did you not get any letters like irate from Colchester? I've invested three years listening to Miss Frankenstein. And I'm simply not having it. <laughs> Not at all. Yeah. I had a couple of people who were like, oh, I can't believe that's not your real name. I really thought it was your real name. <laughs> yeah, lots of oh, that. That Count, Count of Monte Cristo and his wife. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, my favourite email that I got came through this morning and it made me laugh out loud. Um, where is it? I have to read this to you. Hi, Anne. Are you no longer on Jazz FM? Have you returned to the US? <laughs> 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 no, I've returned to Castle Frankenstein. <laughs> um, that one made me happy today. But yeah, everyone's just been really nice. And I, by the time I got to the end of my my first show on Jazz FM, saying mm. my real name, it just felt like a normal thing. And ah, well, yeah, that's good. It's well, it's I'm going good. to try very hard to get your name right. You get a reprieve Deb. if you get it. Don't worry, I'm not going to scream at you like I used to do when you called me Deb. I'll be very yeah. patient. Because <laughs> I've already paid for those crimes. <laughs> I've already paid. When you keep changing the rules, it's not my fault. I can't keep up. I'm I a simple know. man. I'll, I'll be very patient. Tastes. I promise. I promise. Yeah. Well, listen, it's great to have the real you in the room at last. Thank you. It's nice to be here. Yeah, well, Thank you, you for go. being my friend. Oh, thank you for being my uh, co-worker. <laughs> Eamon Murda, the new reigning king of Bristol. What goes around? Well, uh, what goes around? What goes around with me is I'm beginning to wonder if um, all this music business uh, is You're going to jack it in? Is this what you're telling well, I, me? I think I'm going to have to because uh, it's just becoming so darned expensive. I mean, it is crazy. I know you're just being uh, provocative. Go on. Well, yeah, I'm not going to give it in, but I'm, I might start pirating a bit more. <laughs> <laughs> Put it this way. So a couple of examples. First of all, um, all the major record labels are putting their prices up for their vinyl quite considerably, mm. like double digit percentage points. And that is going to impact on you and me fairly shortly, I'm telling mm. you. And there are albums, new albums coming out that are coming out at 
at a price point of £40 for a new album and £11 for delivery. And that's from Bandcamp, who were the good guys. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? So you're spending 51 quid on an album. I mean, I'll be honest, I didn't buy it. I did. I just, I just turned it down because I just, it's too much money. Which it's album? Can money. you tell me which album? It was that from? Clio Soul album, which is oh, wonderful. Yeah. But I just, you know, I just for something that's so laid back and so down tempo that I'm not really going to play out. Mm. I can't be spending fifty one quid on a, on a record like that. And then, just as I thought that that was, you know, the 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 peak of the 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 wave of. Um, the peak Money of the madness. wave. The peak of the wave, I think. That's a, that must be an expression like that. But then Adele shows up. South London girl, salt of the earth, so she is leave it out, minus minor kids look after the stall and all that. Have you seen the prices for her Hyde Park gig? Oh, I think I saw you posting them on Twitter. What, the cheap seats are 90 quid? Uh, 90 quid. And uh, get this, there's no seats. You're in a park. <laughs> the cheap seats are you standing up for 90 quid. 90 pounds and 45 pence. That annoys me. Yeah. Because if you're going to charge 90 pounds, fucking sharp about the 45 pence, mate. Swallow that. You can fucking swallow that. I've already given you 90 quid. I mean, that's kind of like, yeah. I mean, Adele does like to present herself as very salt of the earth. Obviously, she's far away from that world now. But like, I don't understand this. Do you not mind people thinking you're a money-grabbing arsehole? Like, mm. she, maybe she doesn't have that much say in how much the tickets cost. But if I were her, being very rich and never needing or wanting for anything, you know, to the point where she doesn't even really need to tour or mm. make music, would you not it's just... It's hardly a tour. It's two nights in a park. Yeah, well, this is it. Like, <laughs> would you not just say, like, here, hang on, could we not make some tickets, maybe 45 quid or something, which is still expensive in my book. Yeah, but, Absolutely. Know, like, well, you know, the, the thing about this is that uh, when, we, when we balk at the uh, terrifying £90, 45 pence, that <laughs> is general admission. Uh, that is the cheap seat. This is the rubbish bit, right? That is you trapped in a park for 11 hours at the mercy of the concessions for food and drink. Mm. And, then, and don't even get me started on the T-shirts and the transport there and back and all that. Primary entry... So I don't know this general admission, this primary entry. I don't know what, what makes primary entry special, but mm. that's 115, no, 111 pounds, 85 pence. I'm just going to go through it now because it just gets... Go for it. Honestly, this will keep your jaw supported or it'll be on the floor. The gold tickets, I mean, it, goes, it goes general primary gold. Gold is 273 pounds, 95. Diamond VIP experience, 379 pounds, 95. This isn't even the top yet. VIP Terrace, £434.95. And if you want the ultimate bar diamond terrace ticket, £579.95 pre-sale. And that's just so you don't get treated like an arsehole, basically. If you get a £90.45p ticket, you're your chump. You're and a chump, then, yeah, yeah, yeah. You're absolutely, you're, you're basically cattle, yeah. You know, uh, <laughs> but I can't. I mean, maybe you get get a nice table and then, then make some free drinks, but f nearly six hundred quid yeah. to go to Hyde Park and see someone sing from a mile away. I don't know how the youth dem are ever going to get into music if they're having to find this much money to go and see an act. Yeah, I think it's kind of a reflection on how the music industry and the way the music industry makes money in general mm. is changing. 
Yeah, it's just, uh, I mean, I can understand it because obviously people aren't making the same amount of money they used to make off physical sales of things. Mm. And uh, I do my best to keep them afloat by giving them all the money I have. Yeah. Records are going to go up by five or six pounds easily in the next couple months. And they're already quite a lot. And it seems already we've got this terrible problem where there just aren't enough pressing plants in the world. Mm. So you can't get your records made. And if you can get your records made, you get a lead in time. So I ordered the Salt album, Salt mm-hmm. 9, literally uh, over 100 days ago. And I still haven't got it, right? Yeah. Because I've had to wait for them to press it. And then, you know, it's, it, they dribble them out, basically. Mm. And you, you, when you when you pre-order a record, you expect it to be there in a couple of weeks, not in three months' time. Yeah. So it's quite, you know, it's quite a weird thing, especially because you can listen to the record on online, you can stream it and stuff, but you, as a as a physical person who is paying more than anyone else, have to wait the longest. It's very odd. People like Adele, who are making a metric shit ton of money need to take that money and build a nice little vinyl factory for every third gig yes, please. and then we'd all be happy yeah like um like jack white did in, uh, white, in nashville yeah, yeah exactly, exactly. And there are plans to do another one he's opened up a little pop-up shop in london as I well know, i haven't been there yet i'm excited to go it looks really cool <sighs> he opened like it, it up the week i left oh, damn it i like it because um uh they sell loads of funny little knickknacks and that's my mm. my Achilles heel. Obviously, I love records, is. but I also love knickknacks. Um, what a keychain! <laughs> um, yes. Hey, this is Mad Parish, and I'm listening to What Goes Around, and you should be too. What we're gonna, what we're gonna, what we're gonna do right here is go back, way back, back into time. <laughs> Our guest today is musician, producer and label manager Simon Ramond. Best known for his time as songwriter, bass and keyboard player in the seminal post-punk band The Cocteau Twins, Simon's work won plaudits from every corner of the music industry. John Peel was an ardent admirer and regularly featured the Cocteau Twins in his Festive 50. Prince was a huge fan and even tried to sign the band to Paisley Park Records at one stage. And I feel compelled to tell everyone that Simon is responsible for at least two of my favourite albums of all time, Treasure and The Moon and the Melodies with the late Harold Budd. After the breakup of the band, Simon became the label manager at seminal indie label Bella Union, where he had a hand in the early part of John Grant's career, produced and mixed a number of brilliant records by the likes of Clear Lake. He continues to write and produce music and share his insights for the music business to budding musicians around the world by speaking at industry events. It's with great pleasure that we welcome Simon Ramon to the show. Hello, Simon. Hi there, guys. How nice to meet you. Well, it's lovely to have you on, I must say, because uh, we've been doing this show now for about two years, I guess, and we've, we've had many guests on and we've had about 100 songs picked up as phonographic memories and only a couple of artists have ever featured more than once the Beatles and Miles Davis to name two but by far the most popular choice of any of our guests has been the Cocteau Twins so you're definitely on the right show well I'm glad to hear that because I've picked one of the one of our own songs in my, <laughs> in my, in my, in my, my track list boost so your numbers even further exactly you'll be way out ahead no one yeah. can catch you <laughs> um, how, how are you doing today were you deep in belly union work yeah I mean you know uh, so many things going on at the moment but the whole industry is sort of 
consumed in this pressing vinyl problems. Mm. I'm sure most people uh, listen to your show will, will sort of have heard about this and it's, yeah, it kind of takes you over a little bit. Um, so there's, there's constant issues to deal with on the Bella Union side. Um, domestically, I'm living in a, a temporary uh, apartment at the moment with my wife, dog and cat while our, mm. our, our house is being fixed up. So, um, you know, a bit unsettled actually at the minute as I speak oh. to you, but um, normally I'd be doing this, this podcast with you from, from my own studio in the garden. But um, currently I'm on the fifth floor of an apartment block with my headphones plugged into my laptop. Um, <laughs> hoping that it all works because you know this is a bit unusual for me to to not be in my own space. You know, oh, when will you get back to your studio? Well, you know, I think we just we just had this work done at completely the wrong time. You know, because of Brexit and the materials in the building industry is is a sort of like price has gone up double and nothing. You can't get any wood. <laughs> you know, it's, just, it's a bit like the vinyl problem. You know, sort of like can't get any latex to make coloured vinyl. Can't get any wood to build a house. What's your take? on the um on the whole vinyl uh what would you even call it is it a crisis yet has it reached that point and how much is adele to blame because i'm seeing her name getting oh, stop blame poor adele i'm just poor i'm just thing. curious to get simon's take well you know i mean i think nobody's to blame well i mean the industry is to blame to, to a huge degree because this you know, it's, it's obvious this was going to happen. Vinyl has been increasing, you know, vinyl sales have been increasing year on year for ah, maybe six or seven years, um, blowing up big every time. And the fact that n nobody really, I mean, there's maybe one new plant being built right now in, in Newcastle, but it's not going to be ready for ages. Mm. I, I think that that's the problem, you know, the, the capacity is just not there and, and, and demand completely uh, exceeds the supply. So... Uh, you, you know, yes, of course, these things get the headlines. Billie Eilish, Adele, you can pick any any number of names where it'll be easier for those artists to jump the queue because, you know, they're, they're, they're with major labels and, you know, they can spend the money to, to jump the queue. But uh, we all have to just get on with it. And I'm not really a moaner in life. I'm not somebody that just goes, oh, gosh, what a, what a disaster. You've got, you've got to try and find solutions positively. Um, but even somebody like me, who's naturally quite optimistic about things, even I find it quite hard with, with the current situation because you're constantly delivering bad news mm -hmm. to your bands. Imagine mm -hmm. you're a 16-year-old punk band who just made your album, I don't know, in two days with Steve Albini and you're all thoroughly excited about the way life is. You've just got this brand new mix in your hand and you go to your record label and it's like, okay, so when, when can we put our, our great new record out? And, you know, the message will be, yeah, maybe like in a year. Oh, because that, that's sort of, you know, that's the messaging that's happening right now. You deliver a record and probably nine, ten months from now, you, you'll be able to get the vinyl in your hands. That is a, a pretty depressing and frustrating mm. state of affairs for young bands. Well, for any band, to be honest. But uh, that's what we're dealing with. So it's a case of, are there solutions out there? Not many, to be honest. I mean, the comeback of the flexi disc is well and truly on. Uh, <laughs> whoever thought anyone would be uttering that sentence. Uh, and cassettes, you know, people are making cassettes because you can do all these things in a couple of weeks. Vinyl yeah. is taking eight to nine months and that's just grim. No yeah, two ways about it. Look, if you want to wait a year to put your record out so it comes out at the same time uh, with, as your digital, 
then that's really up to you. But if you want it to come out sooner, then it'll have to be a split release date. You'll have to have the digital first and then the vinyl to follow. Mm. I think artists who've done that already, like Fleet Foxes, Nick Cave, um, the audience don't, doesn't mind. You know, yeah. as you say there with Salt, you, you know, you, you can listen to the record of Tan on Spotify, uh, on streaming services or whatever, and then you'll still, you'll still want the record when it comes out physically. With a lot of new bands, that's harder though, because you know the audience really kind of wants it now. They want to hear it. They want to get the vinyl on the, on the day it's released. So it, it's a harder message to spread to everyone, but this will have to happen. This will become the norm, right? Mm. It will become the norm to have split release dates. There's, there's, well, because there's no other way around it. You can't tell every band that they're going to have to sit on their record for a year. It's, it's just not doable. Mm. So the industry will change as a result of it. Um, and who knows, maybe it will be a positive thing at some point rather than everyone just being depressed about it. Yeah, I'm curious about the return to cassette tapes. I mean, that could be a whole... <laughs> that, that's kind of... feel like that's kind of... Cassettes have been waiting in the wings to make a comeback <laughs> for a while. Yeah, I mean, now. listen, I've, I've still got a cassette player in my kitchen and I, you know, I listen to tapes all the time. I love that format. But, you know, I'm, I am 60, I'm not 20, but I think uh, kids want to contribute when they go see their favorite band and if at the merch table there's no vinyl but there's cassettes and a flexi disc you know and a t-shirt that that's what they'll buy but mm. i mean it isn't going to set the chance alight um but what will what it will mean is that if you put your pre-order for your vinyl up at the same time uh, uh, as the digital goes announced then i think people will pre-order that vinyl and then mm. hopefully when it actually does land the sales will be significant because of what we have obviously seen in the last sort of six months is that streaming numbers have increased enormously because of you know because mm. of what you just said there uh, you can't get hold of the vinyl so what option have you got you probably be playing the cd or the vinyl at home but you can't so you're going to listen to the record tons more on the streaming services that that has you know that's a good thing uh, in terms of building up the profile and keeping the momentum going. But as you say, it's, it's not quite the same. Mm. Perhaps we should just try and um, talk Abba and Adele into creating a new vinyl factory somewhere. That, uh, that they might, all, might yeah. ease the burden. Yeah, they could all buy one easily. But, you know, it's such an old-fashioned manufacturing industry. It's, it, it requires, you know, I don't know if you've ever watched a YouTube video on mm. how vinyl is made. But there's so many parts to it. It's, it's a big big commitment to set up a pressing plant i've looked into it believe me not not just me paying for it i couldn't afford that but uh, partners uh that i work with you know we've all been looking at the possibility of investing in a pressing plant um but it's basically it's like a half a million quid just to just to start that, that that's mm. forgetting the forgetting the the staff uh, and it's probably about 18 months to two years from purchase of equipment you know that doesn't take into account rent where you're going to put it yeah. uh, you know the building you're going to put it in the staff you're going to have it you know it's an absolutely massive massive undertaking uh, i understand why not that many people would be um biting uh, chomping at the bit to to do it because it's who, who can sit on an investment of half a million quid for two years before you yeah. actually start to see some income coming in so it's, it's a bit of a messy situation for sure but um Let's, let's move on to something a bit more yeah. <laughs> Let's wind back the clock to a time when this wasn't even exactly. a, a worry of yours. Yeah. Exactly. Um, <laughs> when the plastic was easy and the living was free. Exactly. Let's wind back the clock. Uh, and I'm really curious to talk to you about this because your first um, phonographic memory pick 
um, is the uh, the Walker Brothers, who obviously your dad, Ivor, worked with. Is that why you picked the Walker Brothers, or what's the memory you associate with this one? Yeah, I mean, it goes back to childhood. Um, so, and one of you know one of the f- first songs, probably. I mean, it came out when it, when I was three, so I certainly can't profess to being a fan of it on its release um, because I would probably have been you know listening to wheels on the bus or something at that point in time but um, (laughs) make it easy on yourself is a classic isn't it from the 60s and and I think when you're a kid you know your parent you, you know obviously love your parents but you're not really aware of what it is they do so all of that stuff, the admiration for, for what my dad did and understanding what he did, di- didn't obviously come till, um, you know, I was sort of eight, nine, 10, 11. And obviously been hearing a lot of the songs he worked on in the house growing up. Uh, but this song really kind of resonated with me as I sort of got into my teen years and started discovering music properly and becoming a fan. Um, obviously then became a massive Scott Walker fan. I mean, I loved the Make It Easy On Yourself and The Sun Ain't Gonna Shine Anymore, which were the two, the two tracks my dad arranged. Um, and then I just became a massive Scott Walker fan when I was probably in my early 20s. So uh, the reason I picked this, though, was, was sort of as a, nod, as a nod to my father, because I, I spent the last 10 years researching all the work that he did during the 60s, 70s and 80s, and I've put out a couple of um, beautiful compilations on my own label um, that feature all his work. Well, not all of it, but a, a huge percentage of it. They're both double albums. They're really beautifully put together, beautifully packaged. This, this song is, of course, on, on, on one of those compilations. And, um, yeah, it's just a sort of... I mean, he died very young, my dad. He died, uh, like, uh, 59 years old. So actually same age I am right now <laughs> not to put a downer on it but um, you know his work to me uh, I was so so proud of it and to be able to put those records out on, on Bella Union and draw a light on shine a light on some of the the more obscure things and the things that he maybe didn't get the credit for during his lifetime um, was a real privilege for me I have to say yeah so very hard to do if you really love him and there's nothing I can do don't try to spare my feelings just tell me that we're through And make it easy on yourself Make it easy on yourself Cause breaking up is so very hard to do Can you tell us a little bit more uh, about your dad for the uninitiated? Who, who exactly did he work with and what was the kind of, what are the kind of defining characteristics uh, of his work? Well, he was, uh, I, mean, in a, I mean, I'd never compare myself to anywhere near w- what he achieved, but he was quite, um, what's the word, um, multi, you know, multi-talented. He, 
He was an arranger. He actually started playing a, a piano on the on the Queen Mary. His, his first yes. job was was in a jazz trio on the Queen Mary, going from Southampton to New York, and uh, you know in his teens. And he um, he came back from from doing that one time, and I think he was busking. He was an accordion player, and he was busking in the East End. And he he kind of made friends with this BBC uh, producer who uh, started giving him bits and pieces of work. He actually was an extra on Tony Hancock's Half Hour, um, which, which I didn't know about till I was actually in, I was in my 20s and I was in the bath reading a, I was obsessed with Hancock as a, as a, as a, as a 20 year old and I was in the bath reading a kind of book about uh, all the cast members um, are of, 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 of Hancock's Half Hour. And I saw my dad's name in this book and I called my mum up and I was like, you never told me Dad was in Hancock's Half Hour. She's like, "Oh yes, I did. Everybody knew that." And I was like, "I really genuinely didn't know." So that was kind of amazing. He started working wow. in BBC, doing a few shows, then getting a few gigs, doing um, 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 little scores and soundtrack uh, soundtrack things at the BBC. And then I think he got a job working on some arrangements. And then he had a songwriting partner called Mike Hawker. And they wrote a few massive hits together. They did I Only Want to Be With You, um, oh, wow. which was a big hit for Dusty Springfield. There's a funny story about that, actually. They actually wrote it for Frankie Vaughan. And um, they took it round Frankie Vaughan's house and they played it to him on the piano. And uh, my dad was playing the piano and, and Mike was kind of singing the song. And Frankie was like, oh, it's a, it's a great tune, lads. Really, really good. But I've actually got a single coming out in a couple of weeks. So I think I'll, I'll take a rain check on that. So they literally jumped in the car, drove around to Dusty's house, because my dad was already working with the Springfields, <laughs> Dusty's, Dusty's um, they were a brother and sister uh, band, mm. like a folk band. And they played it to Dusty, and I think she was think, starting her solo career shortly. And yeah, she recorded that song like a week later. And um, it was, I don't think it was number one, actually. I think it got to like number three in the chart. But that was one of my first, my dad's first big hit, probably 62, 63. So just when I was being, just when I was born, basically. So he was doing songwriting. He was doing string arranging. He was doing musical direction. He worked with Joe Meek. Um, he worked with incredible people in the 60s and 70s, like obviously the mm. Walker Brothers we mentioned. David Bowie he worked on David Bowie's first record on a track called oh, yeah. Love You Till Tuesday. Oh, um, I love that record. Of yeah, it's amazing. But I, I didn't know really any of this stuff, right, until I was quite a bit older. And then because he done, and then I got into my own musical career and didn't really appreciate my own dad's stuff until he passed away. And then I obviously began this journey of looking back into his life through YouTube, through Discogs. And it kind of blew me away, just like, good grief, you know. Mm. Yes, I knew the headlines, I knew the, I knew the big tracks that, 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 that we all knew about, but it's just the breadth of the other stuff that he did. And, and that's what I tried to highlight on those, those two records. And the Walker Brothers, uh, in particular, are one of those bands, like you said yourself, you, you really, really got into them in your 20s. And yeah. I went to the um, celebration of Scott Walker at the Albert Hall a few years ago with John Grant singing and various other people doing versions of, of uh, his songs. A couple of things struck me, because I, I, I'd say I was a passing fan. I have a couple albums. I was really struck by the talk around the venue and the reverence in which... Uh, Walker was held by everyone. I mean, he really is worshipped obsessively by the people who get into his stuff. 
And when you look at the, the sort of breadth of his stuff, of course, you start off with these wonderful singles, but then you end up, you know, with Tilt and him making albums with Sun O. I mean, the breadth of his his journey is amazing. Yeah, he was absolutely incredible. Actually, um, I was heavily involved with that show. I actually curated it. All um, oh, right, well, there you go. Yeah. So, <laughs> it was um, great. I loved it. <laughs> oh, good. I'm glad you said that. <laughs> uh, yeah, it was, a, it was, a, it was a, one of the, probably one of the best nights of my life because not only did did the night go well um also i'd been obviously working on it since it was in july and uh, i'd been working on it since january and um i'd been speaking with with scott's managers never not even directly with scott but because everything's done through his management company and i was like do you think he's going to be able to come because obviously like like everyone i knew that scott was very reclusive and and not really someone that that ever traded on his past you know as you said with tilt Mm. there and and all the records he's been doing in the last 10 15 years you know it's very obvious that this is somebody that you know is is not going to vegas to croon uh, you know the hits of (laughs) hits of the walker brothers he's somebody that's very into his own new music so i never really imagined that he would come um his manager did say he might um, we kept a, kept a 10 seats for him and his family in case he did decide to come at the last minute. And obviously I spent the whole show kind of like looking around mm. <laughs> you know, excitedly wondering <laughs> if he actually was there. I, don't, I, don't, I can't even say I enjoyed the gig because I think I was just so nervous <laughs> about it. Um, <laughs> and watching it back on, 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 on the iPlayer, I, I realised it was a good show. But uh, going yeah, backstage afterwards, um, you know, I walk into the dressing room and, and there's Scott. With his, wow. with, his, with his partner and his kids. And I'm like, blimey. And he was so lovely to me. He'd come up and give me a massive big hug and just, he, you know, he said that was so brilliant because I know he was worried about it. We, we talked through his management a lot about how it would go. And he'd, he'd seen the Bowie uh, prom, I think, the year or two years previous to that. And he, mm-hmm. he, he didn't think it was that great. And he'd said, you know, what I, what I really insist on this prom is that you make it powerful. It just has to be massive and it's mm. when, when i was talking to jules buckley the the, the arranger and the, the conductor in the preparation you know we, the, the this phrase really stuck in our head how important it was that the that it was powerful that the arrangements were really big sounding and he was so chuffed that they were and uh mm. it just it blew me away to be honest to actually meet him to have a big hug with him and he was so generous with all the artists he went into everyone's dressing room and he stayed and he chatted and then when, when, when we were being kicked out of the venue, we'd arranged to have like a, a, a sort of private room at a bar around the corner from, 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 from the Royal Albert Hall. And, you know, we said to Scott, you know, do you want to come? And expecting him to like just have gone by then. And he came out and he stayed with us in the pub till like one o'clock in the morning. Totally, totally, oh, totally blew me away. Um, yeah, because he's been, you know, he's been a hero of mine for, for well, pretty much half my life. That's amazing. What a lovely thing. To, so many things have come together there. Your, your fandom for yeah. him, the, the fact that he'd been away, and the way, I mean, just like I say, from being there, the feeling, I mean, I, I like Scott Walker. He, he was a, a big thing to me. I, I do love him and stuff. But the, the love coming from the audience and, and also from the performers, it was, it was really intense. It was like a very special atmosphere in there. It really was. It was very emotional for me and for John as well. As you mentioned that, that, that I work with John Grant, I've been working with John Grant for, for t- almost 25 years now. I signed him, was one of the first artists I signed to the label and, and you know, I still, still work with him uh, uh, to this day. So it was very special for us because, you know, I remember playing him Scott Walker uh, records, you know, the Walker Brothers stuff 
very early on in our relationship back in in the 90s so um for him for you know for me to be able to involve him in that show uh was really really special too amazing and and you know also the echoes of your dad's work going all the way through it well what a lovely thing yeah. to have done agreed <laughs> one thing uh, we should swiftly move on to is your your second choice which of course is the cocktail twins which is you know your great legacy that you've you've made and i certainly remember this track coming out millinery i still can't say it millinery millinery oh thank you <laughs> thank you so much <laughs> just split it into two because the millinery is obviously a word and Millie yeah. isn't really a word but Millie. if you stick together it's <laughs> Millie guess. Millinery yeah but I mean all Cocktail Twins titles are a bit of a mouthful aren't they <laughs> that's true well I had a friend uh, when we were about 14 or so and he managed to woo his girlfriend whose name was Melanie by singing Melanie oh. over Millie Millinery so there you go oh, well you, there you go caused love to spark but tell us about uh, your life with the Cocktail Twins and why you've chosen this track particularly well, yeah, I could have chosen any number of tracks because the, the band is, is obviously pl plays a massive part of my life and is a, a, mm. a very um, big influence on my career, no doubt about that. But this track is the, is the first piece um, that we wrote together. The story goes, like, this is very, very late eight, 1983. So I was working mm. in Beggar's Banquet, the... The, the label. I was working in the record shop at Beggar's Banquet in uh, South Kensington. Um, I was signed to a little. I was signed to uh, a, another little label inside Beggar's called Situation Two. Four AD. They shared an mm -hmm. office with Four AD, who was the Cocteau Twins label. Mm -hmm. And the band had already put out um, their first album, Garlands, in 1982, and then the second album, Head Over Heels, came out in 1983. And I was a fan, definitely a fan. I would go with with the label boss Ivo and, and watch the band play. We actually drove around uh, the, U the, the UK tour together when they played, I think it was sort of uh, maybe late 1983. So I was friendly with the band. I knew them, they were a fan of my band. I was a fan of their band. I wasn't looking to leave my band, but, and I was pretty sure they weren't looking to get anyone else in. I had no concept of, of, of this being a master plan. But, mm. I had a, a little weekend job working at an eight-track studio in Camden, and the owners were away one weekend. And I'd said to Robin and Liz, because I knew they were in London, I said, listen, if you want to come and uh, work in the studio uh, that weekend, it's free. And I'd be happy to, you know, let you in and you can mess about, do what you, do what you want to do. Um, you know, get to use the studio for free for a couple of weeks, for, for a couple of days. So they were like, great, awesome. So they turned up. And let them in, and then sort of brought Robin brought his guitar in, and uh, we sort of sat down, had a cup of tea, and then Robin says, "So what do you want to do?" And I said, "What do you mean? What do you want to do? I'm here to help you." <laughs> so I went, "Oh, we, we thought you wanted to write a song together." Um, I was like, "Wow, where did you get that from?" I was not, uh, no, not at all. You know, I'm just here to help you. And they said, "Well, let's, have you got a bass?" I said yeah and they said well let's just mess about so he plugged his guitar in i plugged my bass in liz popped out for chips and when <laughs> she come back in like probably about an hour we jammed this tune together and because he robin had said to me have you got any bass lines i said well not really but i'm sure we'd come up with something so we just started jamming together and this tune came um it was very improvised which is pretty much how our songwriting, well, it's wholly how our songwriting was for, 
for the next 15 years. We, we would just literally plug guitars in, mess about, no vocals, no melodies. Liz would always just be in another place. We would construct this piece of music together in as quick a time as possible. It would either come together or it wouldn't. And if it wouldn't, we'd just go home or go bowling or something. And um, when, Liz come back in, when Liz came back in like a half hour later, she was like, wow, what on earth is that? That is one of the most beautiful things ever. So we had a beautiful day and this piece of music then sort of developed it, it the recording that that you know that's on that first release the pink opaque mm -hmm. um album yeah. release that's the original recording of, of that we wow. did in that eight track studio obviously liz did her vocals later i think for, if memory serves me right so it, it, but but the music is exactly as it was recorded then which is kind of like weird and remarkable because mm -hmm. I'd literally just met the people, you know, I'd, I'd ne never spent any time with them before this, you know, a, a hello at, a, at, a, at the backstage of a club here and there, but I'd never been in their company and I'd certainly never dreamed of actually recording a tune together with them. So it was pretty amazing, but I went back to my life, they went back to Scotland to, to, to their life and I sort of forgot about it. My own band wasn't going so great at that time and I was starting to get a bit itchy feet about it wasn't totally working out, wasn't really happy with it. And then Robin just called me out the blue, I think it was December 1983, and said, look, we, we're going in the studio to, uh, uh, to record an album in, in a month or so. Would, would you like to come and write some songs with us and join the band? And I was just like, blimey. Uh, wow. Yes. <laughs> I just didn't really <laughs> think about it. I just said yes immediately. And, and, and so the course of my life just changed in that very minute. Amazing. What a lovely serendipitous moment. Gosh. Did you know instantly that there was something there that was, you know, like, did it feel like you'd written something that's like, oh, this is good. This is this is going to work. Do you know what I mean? I, I did, did think it, it was really beautiful. Yeah, I did think it was beautiful what we did. Um, but I mean, I didn't totally, you know, you, you just never really know. And uh, I think because Liz said such 
Liz was so into it and, and said such a beautiful thing about it. You know, I, I guess I just was really flattered about that. And I thought, that's, that's just so great that, that she's reacted so well. But then, you know, I just never thought any more about it. Um, because I, w- I didn't think they were looking for somebody else. Mm. Um, and maybe they didn't think they were either. But maybe because it had gone so well, um, maybe they just, I don't know, maybe they just felt that another, uh, another, another person involved would help the songwriting. And... You know, hopefully I, I, I showed that that was true over the, over the next 15 years did. or so. Joining a band like that as well, because they were a band, uh, I mean, I guess because you were in, in the office, you saw them more as humans, but there was a certain sort of mystery and excitement about everything to do with 4AD, to be honest. You know, like the, the, the covers were completely uh, just different to what everyone else was doing. And because they were all designed by the same person, no matter what the band on for it. There was this overall feel for that whole label. Ivo Watts was certainly like a real, a Stengali, I guess you'd say. (laughs) I mean, it was a great coming together of minds, like uh, both artists and producers and um, people making the covers. All of that stuff seemed to come together so well at that time. I mean, you must have felt, it must must have been strange just to slip into that. Is that it, Lawing? Um, I mean, not, yes, in a way, but uh, I think because I was sort of already in the family, I was already working in the record shop for a few years, and I knew, already knew them all as friends, all the people mm. at the label, and I knew quite a lot of the bands because they would all, all come in the record shop on their way up to, up to the label. Um, it, it, it wasn't sort of, it, it wasn't so surprising in a way, you know, it just felt mm. like kind of nice and just like, these are my friends. Um, but certainly... You're right about the the sort of uh, the image of the label and the culture of the label and and how influential that was. I mean, I suppose in that period you've you've got Factory, you've got Rough Trade, um, but I think I think Factory and 4AD were probably quite unique in that in that the design, as you mentioned there, with with 23 yeah. Envelope and Vaughan Oliver, um, certainly up to a point anyway, it was. It was very, you know, an in-house style that was unlike anything else anyone else was doing. Factory obviously had Peter Saville, uh, and you know his influence still still lives on massively today. Um, but yeah, very important part part of my life, and a, you know, hugely I- I- inspirational time in terms of the music that was being created. You know, not not by us particularly, but by so many bands of that period. And, and, and as a consequence, you, you still hear it today in, in, in new bands that are coming along, still massively influenced by that period in music. Who else were you listening to around that time? Who would you have been especially enthusiastic about? Well, we were friends with a few bands, not many. We were quite, a lo- quite loners. Uh, you know, we were all sort of quite <laughs> reclusive in our own way. Was once we were in the studio, we'd really sort of hang out with bands that much but we were friends with Jesus and Mary Jane we were, we loved this band called Diff Juz who were a, a 4AD band that didn't really break through they were an instrumental kind of dubby post, post-rock post band really before post-rock was even a thing um, and my own, uh, uh, my, own, my own current band, Lost Horizons, is me and the drummer from this band, Diff Jazz. And we, we would take them on tour with us because uh, they were just the most brilliant band to watch, but very short-lived. They only, only made a couple of albums. Um, my own, my own, my own favourite things around that period weren't really 4AD bands. I mean, I guess when you're working and in, in you're in your early 20s, you don't really have a massive amount of time to be listening to other music. Certainly then, 
uh, I was not listening to so much, but I was really into dub stuff. I'd gotten into reggae when I was like a punk, when I was 14, 15, li- living, li- living in London, you know, just going out to shows all the time. I was really heavily into, into punk and reggae. So I was still kind of listening to a lot of that stuff in my early 20s when I joined the band. Um, but then obviously, you know, as happens with everybody who's into music in their 20s, you know, your, your tastes do develop. Mm. And mm. Uh, working in a record shop, which I was, even, even um, after the, the Beggar's Banquet shop shut uh, in, in, in the early 80s, you know, I then I then went on and worked worked in our price records, and I was a manager of of the, Tot- the Tottenham Court Road shop and the King's Road shop. So I, my 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 own taste in music was expanding like by the mm. minute, because those shops, you know, they they have they had everything in them. So um, I went from sort of just really liking punk and reggae to then sort of understanding, you know, all these different types of music and and you know hearing jazz for the first time and understanding you know, who Charlie Parker and Miles Davis was. And so my taste definitely expanded through, through the early 80s. And uh, I think that's probably what's, what's, what, what led me into being an OK boss at Bella Union, is, is having good, broad musical taste. And I'm trying hard, it's hard, but trying to sort of make, make the labour an eclectic, uh, uh, roster, you know, with, 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 without it just being one thing or the other. I mean, yeah, like, you know, just looking back at, at records that, that you've worked on and records coming out of that, I mean, it is so eclectic. I didn't realise that you had produced um, James Yorkston's album. Mm-hmm. And James Yorkston, you probably know this, absolutely huge in, in Ireland. Yes. And um, he... Um, he uh, he released that beautiful record, Moving Up Country, which uh, was uh, like in my CD Walkman pretty much every day for about two years when I was walking to school. Yeah, yeah um, it was great fun to work on. Yeah, and it, it's th- there's such a... I mean, it would have been maybe, I don't know, it might have been like 14, 15 when that album came out. And I was very aware that it had a very sort of... Um, Oh, I'm so bad at describing music. <laughs> I shouldn't be, but I really am. But just sort of a very sort of fresh kind of, it's kind of just un- untouched um, sound to it in terms of the production and that kind of thing. I'm just curious about how you sort of honed your production style. Well, I think it's just all about, you know, uh, working with the, the, what you've got in front of you. And, mm. and there's, there's nothing, there's no massive secret to it. You know, James and, and the musicians he was using were doing something very beautiful and unusual. And, and you know, my production style is, is, is I'm not doing anything fancy. I'm just literally helping the band sound like what they want to sound like. You know, mm. there's, there's, there's no great secret to it. There obviously are producers out there that, that do fancy things <laughs> and make make artists sound way better than they actually are. But um, James's songwriting is so, so strong. Yeah. He's, uh, he manages to be quite profound and also there's, there's a lot of humor in there. And it, it's very, you know, there's, there's great literacy in his work. It's, uh, his lyrics are absolutely superb. And when you've got brilliant musicians helping to flesh out those 
quite simple folk songs, basically. Um, you know, you can make really wonderful sounding records. And I think because we sort of threw everything at that record, it was, there was some slide guitar on there, there was, you know, horns and strings, an amazing amount of things going on on that record. Um, not all at once, you know, on various different tracks. And it just felt like we were all just loving being in the studio at the same time. Mm -hmm. And I think that's, you know, you can make great records if there's love involved in, in, in in the people that are making it and you could definitely tell that they love being in the band and they love they would love what they're doing i certainly love being in the studio with them james is a funny 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 fella <laughs> and it's just always great if you because we were in a residential studio um actually in a, in, a, in a place called farnham in surrey it was like mm. a hop kiln uh, an old hop kiln that was like mm. circular so it's quite a weird place to be making records because Normally, circles don't reflect sound very well, um, but this kind of worked for us, and it was just a real joy to go in there every day and work with them. Um, and something I think they did a, an anniversary uh, edition of the record quite recently, which um, which I uh, was very happy to see because, mm -hmm. as you say, moving up country is one of my favourite James James Yorkson records. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, how long till the vinyl comes out? We'll have to wait a couple of years. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'll pre-order the flexi disc. Yeah. We'll be alright. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, tell us about your your last choice then, because this is a, a new one on me. Obviously, I'm very familiar with the first two, but Oral Thomas in Quiet Moments and Lost Horizons, featuring Oral Thomas. Tell us about this one because I, I listened to this earlier on. I thought it was really good. I really enjoyed it. Well, so the sort of it's hard to hard to know where to start in terms of like praising it into a story that's palatable for a podcast. This is quite a long story, take, but take so time, listen, take time. So listen, um, it was around about twenty sixteen, and mm -hmm. maybe even fifteen, and I was preparing for the twentieth anniversary of Bella Union, which was mm -hmm. uh, in twenty twenty seven. Started the label in nineteen ninety seven. And I was, you know, thinking about all these events we could do, records we could release, anniversary things we could do, and just like making the celebration of our 20th anniversary so, something special. Um, and I should have been feeling really great, but I was just something wasn't quite right, and I couldn't put my finger on it at all. And then I just kind of realised one day that I'm not making music. Why am, why am I not making music anymore? And I kind of had a big old think about it, and I, I kind of realized a lot of things about myself. I sort of, not didn't really get, go off into the woods and have a big old cry moment, but it was, mm. a bit, it was a bit like that, where I realized I'd been working for all this time on Bell Union, and I'd pretty much forgotten my own original career, which was, you know, making music. And I'd sort of put it to one side initially, because the label just got very busy, and I sort of got consumed with trying to do a good job, keep the label afloat. You know that shouldn't that, that that's a very big part of it as well, making sure the label didn't go bust because it nearly did several times. That in itself is quite a thing. Uh, I've gone through a, you know a divorce and um, that you know that that's a big thing. Uh, mm -hmm. Having kids and, and then suddenly you know not not being in, living in the house with them anymore. That there's all of that. The breakup of the band Cocteau Twins in in '97, which sort of led to this to me doing this label thing. I hadn't really dealt with that properly. And when I got to 2015, 2016, I started to realize that the reason I hadn't been making music, I'd done, I'd done bits, by the way. I hadn't like completely stopped. I'd 
done a record with my ex-girlfriend, Stephanie, a thing called Snowbird in, in 2012, mm -hmm. I think it was. And I'd played piano on some people's tunes and I'd done bits and pieces, kept my hand in as it were, but I hadn't made a record in 20 years. And I wow. thought, that's weird. And I needed to work out why I hadn't done that and why I hadn't been willing to sort of, you know, start a new band or get deeply involved in something. And I, and I realized it was really because of the Cocteau Twins thing. And I, I subconsciously maybe had felt that, well, you're not really ever going to be in a band better than that. You're never going to work <laughs> with a singer better than Liz. So why bother? Why bother even being in another band? I think that's that kind of weird messages that I was telling myself. Um, so I think that's what stopped me uh, uh, really jumping in deep. But then I just thought, that is just so stupid. You're actually, you know, stopping something, you, stopping doing something you love to do for mm. really, really poor reasoning. Um, I got why I felt like that, but I needed to do something about it. So I called my old friend Richie, who, like me, had kind of exited the music business uh, in terms of making music anyway, um, pretty much the same time, 20 years ago. He was, after Diff Jazz broke up, he, he, he played drums in the Jesus and Mary chain for a while. But then I think he just got disillusioned with the industry and, and, and just didn't like the way it was going. And he, he just butted out totally. But we stayed in touch. And I got back in touch with him and I said, I don't know, Richie, but do you fancy just getting back in a room together? Not, 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 no band. We don't need to be in a band. We don't need to make a record. But do you just fancy going into a room and just messing about? You play the drums, I'll play the guitar or the piano or something, and we'll just, just thrash around and just have some fun as if we were 15 again. Mm. So that's how this project Lost Horizon started. We did that. Uh, we went into a studio. That I've got, uh, I have a studio in, in Shoreditch. And, um, we went in there uh, for four days, or four evenings, I think it was, um, and we just recorded us messing about. And the long and short of it is, I took those things, that hard drive, I took it back home, and after a few months, I thought, oh, just listen, listen to that stuff, see, see if anything's any good. And it was actually good, even though there was loads of mistakes, because it was all jams and improvised mm. nonsense. There were some good things in there. So I started slowly just putting a bass on, on top of that piano and drum track or putting a guitar part on top of the, the piano and drum track. And, and then I'd think, yeah, actually, that's, that's, that's not bad, that is. That's kind of a tune. And slowly but surely, without even realising it, after a while, we went, we went back in and did another four days. Um, very similar, just jam. No, we didn't have any tunes, didn't have anything worked out, nothing prepared in advance. But we kept doing this a few times, and eventually I had like 20 tracks. Wow. That um, I sort of got to the point where I was like, okay, these are really nice instrumentals, these are really decent. And I started sitting there thinking, <clears throat> okay, this song, who, whose voice would sound good on this? And then I would just pick a singer either somebody I knew or, or just whose voice I just thought would work on this particular piece. And I would just email them to say, hey, I don't know if you know me, but blah, 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 blah. I've got this tune. Do you fancy singing on it? Um, and that's how the Lost Horizons project came together. So with a different singer on each piece. Mm. The first album was called Ojala, which means hope, which means hopefully in Spanish. Um, and we decided 
decided to put our double album out uh, as our first piece, it, again, with, with just different singers on each song. And after we did that, we toured a bunch in 2017, 2018, and we had the most fun we've ever had. And we decided we would do it again. Um, and the album came out this year, uh, uh, the, first, the second half of it anyway, because it was a 16-track album. And the Lost Horizons track featuring Ural Thomas that I've picked for you today is kind of an extraordinary moment because I'd been sent this email by these two producers in Portland and the email started something like, um, we work with this Portland soul singer called Ural Thomas. He's 80 years old and in the 60s he was working with James Brown, with Otis Redding, with Etta James and then something happened to him and then he just kind of exited the music business mm. and we heard about him in 2015 2014 2015 that he was living still living in portland and we'd been fans of of his back in the day uh, from records that he'd, he'd been involved with back in the day so we contacted him and um, um asked if he fancied doing something and he did. And he put out a couple of albums on, the, on, the, on tiny little American labels around about 2015, which I heard, which I then picked up on Discogs. And I listened to them. I was like, blimey, they're amazing. So they contacted me and said, would you listen to the new album that we've just made with Ural Thomas? I was like, yes, that sounds fantastic. So there I am listening to this stuff. And I start discussions with them about putting this Ural Thomas record out on Bell Union. Meanwhile, I'm working on a new Lost Horizons piece of music, and it's quite different from, from the stuff that we've done before. It's quite soulful. It's got this groove to it, it's a bit jazzy, a bit soulful. Uh, I really love what we've done. Um, Richie's been playing quite a lot more stuff than he had on the first record where he'd just been playing the drums. On our new record, him and me had been exchanging a lot more ideas musically and he's playing a bit more piano, he's playing... I'm just trying to involve him a bit more so it's not just all down to me, you know. So I'm sitting there listening to this song thinking, who is the right person to sing on this track? And I just thought of Ural Thomas and I mailed the guys back and I said, hey, you know, Definitely want to work with you on Ural's new record, but could I play you this piece of music that I'm, I, I've been working on with my friend Richie? Because I just think Ural could do a really amazing vocal on it. And, you know, so to cut a very long story short, <laughs> that's what happened. Ural ended up singing on this tune, um, doing his thing, and when I, when I received it back, it just absolutely blew me away. Um, I mean, it's Lauren Laverne's favourite track of the year this year. She's, she's <laughs> played it god knows how many times it's been a really important song for us it's only one of 16 tracks on the record but it's uh it's a very special track ural thomas is going to be releasing his next album on belly union during 2022 our anniversary 25th anniversary year so the whole thing is just sort of really really beautiful how it's come together and he's, he's now no longer 80 he's more like uh he's like he's 83 right now so um, wow
just like me Has anyone heard a bell Ringing through the city streets That's just like me shows you, you know, even at 83, you can have a, a, a new lease of life, you know, and he's absolutely one of the most amazing people. I don't even, I only know a fraction of his story and I can't wait to talk to him properly in real life when the pandemic is over and we get to actually meet up properly instead mm. of just online, you know. Yeah, that, that voice, it's just unreal to me when someone can be mm. in their yeah. early 80s, especially seeing as he sort of, like you say, dropped out of the music industry for a while and has managed yeah. to maintain that incredible Madness. voice. Just beautiful. I always find it interesting when someone who's made a lot of music stops for whatever reason and then uh, after quite a long period of time comes back because that could go so many different ways you know you could mm. really feel the pressure of your past and that like you know the voice inside your head saying why should i bother why should i bother or another one you could you could really like just fall straight back into it we had yeah we had brian jackson on the show and uh we were talking he hadn't made a record in 20 years and then uh he he got hooked up um and uh made a thing on on jazz's dead records but he said he was just confident and it fell straight into place and he was happy to do it but i know some artists really do have difficulty getting back on the horse especially after they've had a successful project that stopped yeah and that is understandable um mine was really just time management and um trying to keep what i'd started afloat you know my, my, mine wasn't like it was more just I forgot that that's actually what I did. <laughs> that's what that um, was. That I needed to, yeah, and that I needed to stop helping, or not stop, but I needed to find some time to help myself to to be happy because I was, as I said before, I was like, there was something wrong. I wasn't totally happy, and then moving out of London definitely helped. Having I moved down to the coast to Brighton, and I think that was a massive part of it as well. Like sorting out my time management and also my health and uh, mental health of, of like finding space in the day where I could actually just take a deep breath of actually nice, mm. clean, fresh air mm. and focus a little bit on me rather than, you know, when you're running a label with like, I don't know, we have about 75, 80 active bands, you know, you, you're, mm. you're putting out fires, you're dealing with things, you're helping people with their careers and it's very rewarding um, being part of that. But also you do forget about yourself quite a lot because all you're really doing from the moment you wake up in the morning to the moment you fall into bed is, is just kind of firefighting and, and, and you know trying to kind of keep the whole thing going so once I'd worked out the time management a bit uh, I, I realized that I could do music in a very in a different way than I ever did before because I'm, I'm just doing it mostly on my own it, certainly this new record which was made during the pandemic mm. I'm just working you know in a tiny little room in my studio um, and then sharing things with artists through email. It's a very odd mm. way of working. But when you listen to that whole album, you'd never know that that record wasn't made with a full band in a studio. Because it, it, 
I'm so proud of how it sounds. It's the first record I fully mixed myself as well. Um, and I'm, I'm really just utterly thrilled that even at my advanced time of life, that I've made a record that I think is one of the best things I've ever done. That's so fantastic to hear. And I, I, I'm sure everyone will agree that it's great to have you making stuff again. And, and you've made such amazing things in the past. And I'm sure there's much, much more to come in the future. It's, it's really brilliant talking to you and hearing stories like that. I think that will give everyone a little bit of a lift. That I like that. Good. I'm glad to hear it. You know, that's all that's what it's all about. <laughs> so what, what are you doing now? What are the immediate plans? Is Berlin, you've got this big anniversary coming up. You must have lots of irons in the fire. What's what's coming up next for you? Yeah, that, that's going to take up a lot of next year. Obviously, trying to get get the backlog of, of all, all this vinyl sorted out is, is a challenge, but one I won't get bogged down in. Um, we, I manage with my co-manage with my wife uh, a, a few artists. One of which just had their their new album released on Friday. They're called Penelope Isles. They're oh, an incredible band from, yeah. from from Brighton. So we're very close with them and very involved in in helping them with their career. It's uh, it's it's a good time to be alive, right? Right, it really is. Yeah, it sounds like you're you're right back in the swing of things, and it's great to hear. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast today, Simon. It's been a real pleasure to talk to you. And thank you so much for all those wonderful records that uh, kept me going in my dark teenage goth years. <laughs> uh, it was a pleasure talking to you guys. Thank you. Dear listeners, I do hope you enjoyed that episode of What Goes Around with me and the other one. Um, Every name change has a cost, and this show is small and it's run informally without major backers. So we're not asking you for money. What we're asking you for is fame. So the one name that hasn't changed this week is the name What Goes Around Podcast. So please go tell a friend about What Goes Around Podcast with the amazing Deb Grant and me, Emma Murta. And if you do that and we get millions of likes and reviews and everyone's kind about us, well, we'll remember you when we're stars. <laughs> <laughs>